of George Knapp listening to That UFO Podcast and having one hell of a good time. That UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and delighted to be joined on the show today by a professor at George Mason University and researcher at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, Mr Robin Hansen. Robin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Very much looking forward to this and ever so slightly nervous, Robin. As I mentioned before, I've listened to your interview with Lex Friedman uh, twice and uh, some of that certainly went over my head. I think I got the gist of most of it, but I'm looking forward to the conversation and and seeing where we go with it. Before we get to that, I want to take you back and ask you, what were some of your earliest memories of the, the subject of aliens, UFOs? Well, UFOs haven't been much of my life at all. Obviously, I've always enjoyed science fiction, so the idea of aliens has been part of that. Uh, but that's usually in the context of some much larger timescales where we, our descendants might meet aliens in, in the distant future. Um, so, you know, I have, I've never expected to meet aliens myself, <laughs> nor have I paid that much attention in my lifetime to those who said they had. So it was very much a passing interest. Obviously, we're going to get to the point of talking about having the website, the papers, and your interest that you're, you've recently been on Lex Friedman and millions of people are seeing you talk about alien civilizations. Is it something that you've really picked up in a, an academic form as you've kind of grown in years? So one of my main intellectual strategies has just tend to look for important neglected topics. And, you know, somewhat early on, I noticed that even though the idea of aliens is obviously important, it seems somewhat neglected, at least among intellectuals. And that tempted me to dabble a bit more in it, to think about the overall you know, arc of history from the origin of life to the rise of humans to where we might go in the distant future and become. That whole long-term arc just seems obviously important, but not that many academics or intellectuals really talk about it. So I did a little work thinking about that. Why do you think it has been avoided by academia widely? I think academics start out with the same sort of sense of what's important that everybody else has, but academics are selected for being able to be impressive in some way they can credential among themselves. That, that's really the product they sell. They don't sell just being people interested in interesting things. They sell we have some special method or approach that lets us credibly expertly say things on a topic that you couldn't say unless you knew our expert knowledge and and methods. And therefore academics search for topics where they can say such things. (laughs) And so in most areas of um, academia, such as mine economics, most introductory courses are focused on all the things we think we can say and then all the things we don't know much about or can't say, we usually just shut up about and try to like pretend it doesn't exist. 
And that's really interesting because some people who, especially in the past, I, I would listen to podcasts or interviews of where Professor Brian Cox, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and even uh, ast- astronaut Chris Hadfield have all recently been quite outspoken and at times derogatory about the subject of, of aliens and encompassing that UFOs in the mainstream media. As someone who isn't a scientist, quite clearly, like myself, as the basis of you know the, these kind of as a scientist you, you want to explore and you want to find new things and like you say the idea of aliens and alien civilizations would be one of the greatest discoveries of all time why do you think again these very well-known people is it the same sort of reasons you think they stayed away from that conversation i think in general um uh, we scientists try to follow an ideal concept of inference or drawing conclusions and there's this idea of Bayesian inference, which is one of our mathematical models of it. And, and this formal theory of how we draw conclusions says that in each topic, we combine two things. We combine some prior probabilities of what seems plausible times some evidence of particular things we see and that might push us toward one conclusion or another. So uh, in general, uh, academics and everyone else, when we think of things like ghosts or fairies, <laughs> Uh, then we ask from our point of view of our basic theory, the other things we know about the world, how a priori plausible is it that there are, say, ghosts or fairies? And then we multiply that times any particular reports that people have seen uh, and try to ask, well, if that theory was true or some other theory was true, how likely is it that this sort of report would have been generated? And you're supposed to multiply those two things for each different theory and then renormalize over all the theories, and that's supposed to tell you what things to believe in. And so most intellectuals and academics uh, on these topics, usually it's the priors that make them uninterested. So uh, given everything else we know about, say, the universe, uh, our prior on ghosts and fairies is really low. We think that's just crazy unlikely. And if your prior is low enough, then any particular evidence you see, will you say, yeah, that's kind of weird, but it's more likely that a weird thing was generated by an ordinary reality that just happened in some situation to come out looking weird than it would be to have been generated by an actual weird thing. If we get to something like UFOs, many people would classify that as like ghosts or fairies. They would say, look, sure, if it were true, it'd be really interesting. But given everything else we know, it's so a priori unlikely that you just really can't take much evidence for it very seriously. Um, now, in the past, we've had things that were classified as like ghosts and fairies that have turned out now in the consensus to be true. Mm. So, for example, asteroids were once thought of as just a crazy rocks couldn't be falling from the sky. Now we believe that's true. Uh, ball lightning is something that people thought well, you know, that's pretty crazy, but then they generated it in the lab. And so people go, I guess it's real because we've made it in the lab. And then there are some very high level kinds of lightning that the first pilot saw sort of octopus looking pink things way up high in the atmosphere. And uh, pilots learned quickly to not report them because they didn't want to be thought of as crazy because they wanted to keep a pilot's license. <laughs> but uh, and so nobody reported it for many decades until NASA put up a satellite and looked in high in the atmosphere. And there it was these big pink octopus-like lightning. So in the past, we have on occasion come across things that people had dismissed and, and they were, you know, revised. So then the question about UFOs, 
is how implausible is it from a priori considerations that there would actually be, you know, real things behind this phenomenon. And that's where I think I have some expertise. <laughs> and that's where I would weigh in on the topic. So I do not consider myself very expert on the particular sightings and the particular reports. I mean, I think to look at that, you need to know the weather, you need to be, you know, be pilot expertise, you need to know the technology and equipment and the kinds of sensors. And those are the kind of things you should know about if you want to weigh in on the particular reports. And I've done sort of an amateur survey enough to say, well, there's, you know, something to be taken seriously there, but I don't want to weigh in. The, the, the most thing I would say is when I've looked at ev the best evidence for, say, ghosts or fairies, I say that looks pretty weak. <laughs> and when I look at UFOs, I go, that looks a lot stronger. I can't tell you how much stronger, but a lot stronger. <laughs> More something to be taken seriously. But I'm not going to claim to be an expert there. I'm going to be a claim to be an expert on the prior. That is, how, how plausible is it on basic considerations that there would be some powerful creatures who could and would do the powerful, amazing things we seem to see with UFOs? Let me ask you, and I want you to pick apart the way I, I sometimes in my layman's terms try and talk about this, and you can please do pull this apart if it's completely wrong. I've often said that when people talk about it, it would be almost impossible for another civilization to have technology to travel the distance required to, to visit us here on Earth, even if they did exist somewhere else. And I've, I've often used the example that if people were standing on the shore long before we invented even boats or, or a method to sail, the traversing the oceans would have seemed impossible because we didn't have the sufficient craft or technology to do that. And isn't it just a case of another civilization being sufficiently advanced could have developed those means and methods to travel distances that we once thought were incredibly you know, vast, but to them, because of how they do it, it's not, or is that too simple? In order for a scenario to be plausible, we need to think about all the different aspects of that scenario we can and ask whether that whole combination is plausible. So if you know some scenario has a particular element, that particular element might seem plausible, but that doesn't mean the whole scenario is plausible. So if you say, assume the aliens you know, had crafts and they came to visit here, would they have doors in the crafts? And I go, well, yeah, I guess they probably have doors. <laughs> and you might say, see, haha, this isn't so crazy. These people reported seeing a door in this thing. And I go, well, yeah, that part of the report isn't so crazy, given that there's this thing here. Sure, there's a door. But I might say, but the rest of the scenario you generated, that's the thing I might have a problem with, right? So you might say, couldn't there have been some civilization out there and, you know, long ago, and they're much more advanced than they came here? And I'd say, sure, given that they're more advanced, then yeah, they could do more stuff than we did. But I need a whole scenario, a whole story that makes sense that includes that element. That's the harder part. So that I think when most other academics are saying this sounds kind of crazy, it's the whole package that they're responding to. So they're looking for the context, the fleshing out. And to be fair, that's not a conversation I can have. And that's where it's better people well, like I yourself. I think you and I can have that conversation right now if you want. We can just oh, go into it. 
Yeah, well, do you know what? I've got some stuff that will come to that a bit more later okay, on. Sure. So we'll park that because I do want to get to talking about your own work at the moment. And, and your conversation with Lex Friedman was fascinating. Like I said, I used the term layman. Some of the more mathematical conversations and equations went a bit over my head. I like to think I understood the gist of what was being discussed. Um, I really liked the way you broke some of that conversation down, though. It didn't come across as condescending. And that's something I think even Lex himself commented on early in the interview that he appreciated how you you spoke about these terms and ideas and you know not not afraid to to go into some conversations that others might steer away from can i ask you to first off explain the term grabby alien sure so when we look up in the sky the universe looks empty and we can draw some conclusions from that that's data it's data about one kind of alien, but not another. And I want to distinguish the two. So I will say it's data about the loud, but not the quiet aliens. So quiet aliens are out there a long way away. They're small, they're staying small. They don't last long. They're not doing much. They're really hard to see. So a big empty universe is consistent with a lot of quiet aliens out there. However, there's another kind of alien. This is an alien which once it appears, starts to grow, expand rapidly, and then in the volume it touches, it changes that volume, makes a big difference. That's the sort of thing life has done here on Earth and humans are doing on Earth. That is, when we go places, we change things and we make them look different. Uh, that's the kind of life and civilization that we don't see in the universe. And so loud aliens are what we're not seeing. And that's the data to think about. So. Grabby aliens is our specific mathematical model of this more general idea of loud aliens. So grabby is to connote this idea that they go out and grab stuff and they change it. And that we can confront with our observations because that would make a big visible difference. And by grabby, do you mean they'd be more likely to potentially be hostile or aggressive in their actions? Not by definition, but you might guess that perhaps, but the key thing about them is they're grabbing and changing things, right? They aren't just visitors. They're not zookeepers. They're not gamesmen. They are developers and colonizers and changers. They go out into the universe and they take things and they do things with them uh, that don't aren't consistent with their original uses and purposes. So one key idea of a grabby aliens, if, if grabby aliens had come here in the past, we couldn't be here now. They would have taken Earth and everything around us and used it for their purposes. And that would be noticeable. When you say they also change things, is there any potential that grabby aliens could have visited? And let's use an example, and this goes a little bit ancient aliens-esque, but the classic one is aliens built the pyramids, and we don't have to get into that conversation. That's for other other shows and whatnot. But is it possible they could have come here and interfered in a way that did benefit them, and they're no longer here? Of course, that would be possible, but that wouldn't be consistent with the kind of grabby aliens we're thinking of. So think of in the United States, say, uh, as Europeans spread across the West, right? They weren't just making, taking some notes as they went along and maybe composing a song or two and leaving some markers. They made farms, they cut down trees, they, you know, they, they made roads, airports. I mean, they, 
buildings, cities, right? That is, they change things because those new versions were more useful to them. Uh, and so if aliens had come here doing that, we would presumably see a lot more differences, like changing a monument on Earth or two over the course of the last 10,000 years would be a pretty minor effect, right? We're talking big things, like taking apart the moon. That's the kind of big thing we're talking about. Okay, I'm following you now. And, and the difference between those loud and quiet civilizations is quite vast. Is there a moment within a civilization's development that it can almost decide to be a louder civilization or is it something that can just happen what's what's the deal there so presumably every civilization starts out quiet and then they may make a transition to becoming loud and almost by definition once they become loud they can't become quiet again that is a loud civilization would be spread out across a wide space with lots of different parts and even if some of the parts, say, chose to become quiet again, the other parts would continue on to be loud and they would continue to grow and spread and the whole thing would continue to be loud. So then the question is, will there be a point in time where our descendants choose in some way to, to become loud or not? And I do think that's probably the biggest choice our descendants will face in the long run. And I'm trying to write a book about that idea. That's, that's very interesting. Would you say that we're in the very early stages of trying to be loud, sending probes well, out into the universe. It's too early for us to be able to become loud. That is probably the key moment is when it's we're possible to send an interstellar colony out, which could then reproduce itself. Once that happens on any substantial scale, then the cat's out of the bag and it would be too late to stop it. Uh, but before any colonies have been sent out, uh, then it's still possible to stop that. And again, is that talking about steps way beyond us sending a few people to Mars, for example? Absolutely. That is, you have to go to other stars and you have to have send something there that when it gets there could start a new civilization there. That's a lot more than just a metal box that takes some pictures. Interesting. Do you think in sending out these probes and radio waves that we do to the solar system, do you think that's a wise idea? announcing ourselves to the you know the universe at large i would be cautious about that but my grabby aliens analysis says it probably won't hurt <laughs> once you see the conclusions of our analysis i'll just tell you they basic we basically estimate that you know intelligent aliens that can become grabby and that do become grabby appear roughly once per million galaxies and they are at the moment filling up roughly half the universe. We can't see them because they're expanding at almost the speed of light. And once we get into a similar mode, we would meet them in roughly a billion years. That's now, the parameters we're talking about. So the nearest ones, according to this theory, are a really long way away. Now, those, those advanced aliens that are expanding, uh, there's a quote uh, at the top of the page if you go to grabbyaliens.com, which says, advanced aliens really are out there and we have enough data to say roughly where they are in space and time and when we will see or meet them. That's a very confident statement. What makes you so confident that, you know, that especially those first words, advanced aliens really are out there? So it's a more likely than not level of confidence, which I think is news. It's not a 99.99% level of confidence, just to be clear. I, I'd say 
what we have is a three parameter model where each of the parameters is fit to data and where we have a key piece of data that suggests you need to believe in this model. And that key piece of data is our current date. So to elaborate, um, if you just think about advanced life like us appearing on a planet like ours or any sort of planet, we have a simple statistical model that we can use to predict when that would happen in the history of the universe. The simple statistical model says that it's more likely to happen on long-lived planets and much more likely to happen near the end of the lifetime of those planets. In fact, there's a power law that, that suggests, you know, toward the last 10% or something. Most stars in the universe will last for trillions of years. The, the average lifespan is like 5 trillion years. So the average planet lifetime is like 5 trillion years. We are now at 14 billion years, a tiny fraction of that average time. So the, the simple theory we have about when advanced life should appear uh, would be trillions of years in the future. But here we are appearing very early. That says something is wrong about that simple analysis. And we say the key thing that we think is wrong is that that analysis assumes the universe would sit and stay empty and wait until some advanced life finally appeared. We say that instead, advanced life is popping up all the time right now and is filling the universe. And within a billion or so years, it'll all be full. And then it's too late to appear. So we had to appear now early because we had to appear before the deadline. You can only appear before the deadline. And that's why we are here now. But that's why we have to believe they're out there right now. The, the clock date, the date on the clock with respect to the universe is the piece of evidence that tells you they're out there. Because otherwise, we wouldn't be here now. We'd be here much later. If, like me, you have ever had to go looking for a designer, illustrator, or voiceover artist, it can be difficult to know where to start. That's where the folks at Fiverr have created the world's largest marketplace for digital services, with an incredible database of talented freelancers to cover every one of your business needs. Whether you need a new website, a voiceover for your podcast, or someone to manage your social media accounts, Fiverr has you covered. The unique term for a service offered by a seller on Fiverr is called a gig. When creating gigs, sellers can choose their starting price point. Sellers can take this a step further and offer gig packages to buyers using those gig packages. These contain multiple price ranges and sellers can offer buyers various and tailored service packages. In this way, buyers can pick and choose from all that's offered according to their particular requirements. There truly is something for every budget with your payments protected every time. That's really important. Your payment won't be released until you approve the work, so there's no paying for work that isn't of the required standard, giving you the complete control you need to get the perfect product for your business. And for more peace of mind, Fiverr's support team are available 24-7 to answer any questions or provide the help you need. So, if you've been fishing around the net for the right solution, stop. Use the perfect solution and go to Fiverr, that's F-I-V-E-R-R, -R, and find the perfect freelance services for your business today. You can help support this podcast by using my special link, zen.ai forward slash UFO5, that's Z-E-N dot A-I slash UFO and the number five, the next time you need to book a freelancer. Details are in the description. 
And, and those advanced civilizations, again, you mentioned it, it's towards the end of their planet's potentially habitable time. Would it be then that it was necessity that potentially drives these civilizations to to expanding out into the stars as much as it would be technological capabilities? So the key assumption is just some fraction of civilizations do expand. So we don't need really to say why. <laughs> we can say some things about why. Uh, the most, the simplest reason why they might expand is that they do not have a center that controls them. So if they are decentralized, composed of many parts, then if any one part expands, the net effect is expansion. So in order to not expand, they merely need to prevent all of their parts from expanding. And the more advanced they are, the more parts those are. You know, and early on, there might be 10 parts, any which could do it. Later on, there might be a trillion parts, any which could do it. So the simplest story about why expansion would happen is just because it only takes one part to make it happen. Uh, so if, if our descendants, say, fill the solar system with a vast economy, and it only takes one part in a trillion of that economy to send off a probe to another star, and that's enough to start this expansion, this colonization wave, then in order for it not to happen, our civilization has to find a way to prevent any part from doing that. And that's the simplest reason why they might. Now, of course, they might want to and then choose to, or they might want not to, but just fail to work hard enough to prevent it. But it's really hard to prevent it once you're big enough. Now, I heard you use the example and discuss about pans uh, panspermia siblings. Yes. And you've mentioned the word descendants there. Can you just tell us about the term panspermia siblings and what that could mean? So the key idea is in our simple gravity aliens model, the nearest aliens are far away. They appear once per million galaxies. And that makes it crazy unlikely that there's anybody nearby. So in order to actually make it believable that there are aliens nearby, we need to change this model to create correlation so that aliens appear near each other. And a simple way to produce correlation is to say we have siblings. That is life started in our galaxy on some other planet, other solar system, you know, many long ago. So our sun started roughly four and a half billion years ago, and that's when our earth started. But since the universe is 14 billion years, that was almost 10 billion years after the start of the universe. So you might say, well, five billion years after the start of the universe, say some other star was formed and around that, some other planet, an Eden, and life started on that planet 10 billion years ago. And then life evolved on that planet for maybe 5 billion years. And then some rock flew down, smashed into that planet, smashed up some other rocks into the sky, and some of those pieces of rocks had life on them. And those rocks drifted and then landed in the, in the stellar nursery that our sun was born in. So all stars are basically born in nurseries, whole clumps of hundreds and thousands of stars, all born at the same place in the same time, close together. And if this rock had seeded, had flown into our stellar nursery, then not only could it have landed on Earth and seeded life on Earth, but there were so many rocks flying around so close to each other right then that it plausibly would have then seeded many other stars and the planets around them at that same time in that same place. 
And then over the last 5 billion years, those stars drifted apart and are now spread all around a ring around the galaxy. Uh, but that means there's a few thousand other stars out there that might be seeded with life from the same source that we got it, and they would be our panspermia siblings. And then one of those could have achieved our level of technology before us. And then they would be a plausible source where aliens might be coming from to visit us while still explaining why the rest of the universe looks completely empty. <laughs> so if we're gonna try to explain how it is that there might be aliens visiting us now, we have a number of puzzling things to explain. One of which is, if there's aliens out there that close to us in space and time, why isn't the universe full of them? Why does everything look so dead and empty? So one way to do that is to create this correlation. Yes, life appears very rarely, but it appears in little chunks, or life is in several places at the same time and place because it has a common origin. So panspermia siblings would be a key hypothesis we would need to invoke to explain, say, UFOs as aliens, the idea that even though we look out and we see all this dead, empty universe, millions and trillions of galaxies all empty, as far as we can see now, that's consistent with there being aliens near us now because they had a common origin with us. And so there aren't very many of them. There's just maybe one. Maybe in the next million galaxies, there's just this one other alien civilization, the ones that are visiting. And you also discussed the idea that if that was the case, potentially these civilizations, albeit having the ability to travel, could be coming to other quiet civilizations and encouraging us to stay quiet? Well, so we have to ask, what else do we need to assume to make this hypothesis work? So first of all, we assume panspermia siblings. Secondly, we assume that one of those planets achieved our level of civilization before us. From that, we have to guess it's probably at least 100 million years ago that happened. And so they've been at our level of technology for 100 million years within our same galaxy. And right there, that makes a problem, which is it would have only taken them a million years at most to fill our galaxy and change it all if they had been so inclined. But by assumption, they didn't do that. So we'll need to add to the scenario one more element, which is they chose not to. They, for some reason, decided not to expand and fill the galaxy and change it. They had an ecological or religious or other concerns. We can talk about that more if you want, why a civilization might not want to allow expansion, but they chose not to allow their civilization to expand. And they succeeded at that actually pretty difficult task. Yet they survived. So one way to succeed is just kill themselves. And they did not kill themselves. They did not expand. They succeeded at keeping themselves limited uh, and preventing this vast expansion and change. That's something else we'll have to assume about them in order to make the scenario work. Panspermia siblings plus a anti-growth you know, policy of the aliens. But once we assume that they were anti-growth, then for free, we get an explanation for why they're here, right? Because they have this policy against growth. They have been preventing people going out from their own civilization to cause growth. And now they see us in their telescopes and they can draw the conclusion we might violate their rule. We are on a path to 
choosing to expand. That might be one of the things we do. And if they have this rule that prevents them from expanding, then they will want this rule applied to us. They want us to not expand as well. Otherwise, we, you know, prov we, you know, make irrelevant their rule <laughs> if we don't follow the same rule. So then we get an explanation for why they are here. They made an exception for their general policy of expanding. I mean, wherever they came from, it's a long way to come here. They surely can't be allowing very many trips like that, or that would risk breaking their rule, right? Any one vacationing trip along the way could somehow, um, you know, go rogue and fill the universe. <laughs> so they must not allow very many vacationing trips from their origins, right? But this one expedition, they have apparently allowed. And this would be a reason. This is an unusual priority because unless they come here, they, they may not, you know, succeed in keeping this rule. Now, we can also conclude they had a simple way to make this rule be enforced is just to destroy us. <laughs> no doubt, 100 million years more advanced than us, that would have been easy. They could yep. have just sent something here to blow us up, wipe us out, full done, full stop, right? So, but we can look around and say, we are not destroyed. So we can add one more thing we know about them. They are reluctant to just kill us off. They'd rather we adopted this policy voluntarily uh, without muss or fuss or struggle. So they're here to persuade us, not just force us to follow their rule. And it's a, a hypothesis as to why that would be, because as a species, we always think about advancement and growth, and we want to get to this planet, and then from that planet to this, you know, outside the solar system, then into other, as you say, interstellar travel would be an incredible dream to achieve. Why would a civilization, in your opinion, what's the hypothesis that they would get to a point and think, no, we have to stop here? Well, we can already now see when people discuss this idea of interstellar colonization, many of us have doubts and concerns and advise against it. That's something we already see now. So we don't have to hypothesize it. We can just ask, why are people now warning us against allowing expansion? So there's several different reasons. So one is that this expansion would continue competition and conflict. And that would produce evolution. And so our descendants in this process would change. They would no longer be like us. So you might dislike this idea that our distant descendants would become very different from us. You could think they are then aliens and of no value and then you know, think that we should disown them. And you might think, well, we want to prevent our descendants from um, becoming so alien. And so one way to do that would be to control reproduction and prevent expansion. So we may want to both limit who could leave the solar system and also limit the kind of changes that can happen here within the solar system. People are already thinking about, some people say, let's become transhumanist, let's change our minds and change our body. And other people are saying, no, no, that would be terrible. Let's make laws against those sorts of changes. <laughs> but you couldn't enforce laws against those changes unless you also limited where people could go because otherwise they could just go far away and then change there. And then after they changed there, they would come back here and contest with us about control over here. Uh, and, and a related thing is just this idea that we have over time been acquiring more of a world mob or world community that has suppressed competition and war and conflict in many ways that people enjoy and approve. 
So, you know, thousands of years ago, the world was full of warring empires, you know, with enormous destruction, constantly fighting each other. And in the last century, we have created more of a world community. And now we actually substantially suppress, suppress conflict, suppress war, but we also suppress many kinds of business competition. Regulations of business are pretty similar worldwide. Regulation of telecommunications and nuclear energy and transportation and a wide range of other things are actually pretty much the same the whole world over in ways that greatly limit changes in those areas to many people's satisfaction. They like the idea that we aren't allowing organ sales or we aren't allowing just rogue nuclear reactors, etc., around the world. And people will in the future even more like what we've done with the world governance and the world mobs that we have created. Even today, people are talking about how we could deal with inequality, how we could deal with global warming if we have enough world community and world coordination. And we will succeed more of that and we will have more of that coordination. And all of that would be at risk as soon as colonists leave here for other stars. We would no longer be able to have a civilization-wide governance that imposes its will on all of us. Uh, we would then have competitors who leave out to distant stars and a few thousand years later come back with new technologies, new ways of thinking, and contest with us for our control over here. So it's almost like a fragile ecosystem or fragile hierarchy there. The bear, as you say, they don't want to see us have that change that we could then change them or impose ourselves on another civilization. But again, hopefully I'm thinking about this the right way. If one of those civilizations, again, wanted us to stay quiet, how would we as a younger civilization and far more naive and less advanced know to trust that persuasiveness because like you say they're reluctant to destroy us but how might right. that look that you have to then trust well so the key question is they're here to persuade us how do they plan to persuade us what is their persuasion strategy and this is where i think i'll add the third element of my hypothesis to explain ufos as aliens so remember the first part you, there is panspermian siblings out there one of which have reached our level before us the second part is they chose a non-growth strategy and had a rule internally against that, which explains why they're here. And of course, they also are reluctant to destroy us because they haven't. And now we have to ask, okay, but what's their plan? How will they convince us then to not expand? And here I'm going to go on a very common observation among social species is that pretty much all social species have a status hierarchy, a pecking order. There's the high and the low. And a very common feature is the low defer to the high. The low copy the high. The high are in charge. The low go along. This is very robust across animal species here on Earth, and we might postulate that it's also robust among animal species where they came from. So their strategy is simply to be our high. So the way humans have domesticated most other animals that we have domesticated is that they have a status hierarchy and we have just slipped in as the top of their hierarchy. The way we domesticate dogs is we convince the dogs we are the top dog. <laughs> and that's why they should do what we say. It's a very common standard strategy to domesticate a species. You become their top dog. So that's the alien strategy. They are going to domesticate us by being our highest status members. So 
the simple strategy is to be here, not out there. If they did very impressive things way out there in the universe, they would be them and not us. So they have to be part of us. They have to be here. And then they just have to be more impressive than the rest of us. So, you know, all through history, even in human civilization, if the emperor wants you to convince them to bow down and obey the emperor, then the emperor just has to be more impressive than you in a great many ways. A bigger palace, a bigger chariot, bigger crown, bigger entourage, you know, handsome, strong, knowledgeable, witty. They just have to be the top, right? So the alien strategy is to come here and be our top, say, to be the most impressive thing around that we can see. Now, they have one key problem with this. So if you think about how humans have reacted to other alien, I mean, sorry, other foreign civilizations, I mean, most other foreign civilizations on Earth are still pretty similar to us. I mean, they're the same species, they're only a little bit different. But nevertheless, we have often found ways to be horrified by the small differences that exist. And that's a problem. So a foreigner who comes and tries to be the top of your civilization, that's a problem if we see them as the foreigner instead of as one of us. And so um, the aliens have a simple fix for that, which is not to show much about them. If they were to land on the White House lawn and, and start to talk a lot about their civilization, where they came from and how they do things and their various customs and, and principles, we would almost surely find something we hated. Maybe they eat babies, who knows? <laughs> to them, it's not a problem. To us, it's terrible, right? They can't predict which things we'll hate, but they can be pretty sure that if they tell us a lot of things, we're gonna hate a couple of them. And that then the whole plan is off, right? Then we're not gonna see them as the top one of us and we're going to reject them. So they have to be here, be really impressive, but not reveal very much about themselves. So this is the explanation then for why they hang out at the edge of our vision, because there's this key puzzle that many people have noted about this idea that UFOs might be aliens. Look, if they're a hundred million years more advanced than us, then they could have either A, made themselves really obvious and visible, you know, landing on the White House lawn, putting out a hand, talking, you know, being really impressive, just being really obvious, that would have been really possible. Or they could have been completely invisible. There's no reason why if they wanted to track and observe us, they would need to be at all visible in the sky. They could have some completely black satellites orbiting hundreds of miles above that we would never see. With powerful telescopes, they could observe pretty much anything they wanted down here. There's no reason for them to be flashing around in the sky in ways that we would see. So one last puzzle about UFOs as aliens is why are they hanging out at the edge of our vision? Somewhat visible, but not very visible, showing a few things about themselves, but not much. And the hypothesis here is that's because this is their safest strategy for being our top dog. Eventually we'll be convinced they're there, we'll be really impressed, and we can figure out their agenda just from that. They don't need to tell us anything. You and I have just discussed. We can figure out why they're here. We can figure out what they want. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see.
designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fog. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little more. Consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life, consider your eyes. 